Jesus asks two important questions in this gospel reading. Who do people say the Son of Man is? And who do you say that I am? The Son of Man was part of that Old Testament prophecy. This is a messianic uh, promise that God would send on his behalf a Messiah who would deliver God's people. And there were certain signs that people were to look for. Because, yes, it was promised, but it was never articulated when the Messiah would come. And as is human nature, when something like this is promised and you're supposed to look for signs, people actively do so. And sometimes they got it wrong. They project their hopes and desires onto, in this case, a false Messiah or false prophet, and then it turns out, no, they were not the Son of Man. So every generation sort of engaged in this sort of uh, endeavor of looking for those signs of the promised one. And so Jesus now, this is chapter 16 in the Gospel of Matthew, his ministry is really coming towards its end. He's going toward the cross. But as we've heard in the last many weeks of Jesus' healing stories, miracle stories, people have seen enough evidence in Jesus to begin to wonder. And so he asks, with all the crowds that they've been meeting, who do the people say the Son of Man is? Do they have any current candidates? So they said, well, John the Baptist was pretty impressive. Yeah, or, or maybe there's someone who's now sort of capturing the spirit of one of the ancient prophets, Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the others, that somehow they're embodied in this day. And then I think the, the second question Jesus asks is, is different. Because he doesn't presume that the crowds think that he is the Son of Man, which of course he is. And so the second question, who do you say that I am, is of a different kind. It's one thing to report what the people in the crowds are saying. It's another thing when Jesus says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter who's always quick to speak. So you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He gets it right. Just comes right out of his mouth that he understands all that Jesus has done is the fulfillment of what God had promised, that Jesus of Nazareth, who grew up humbly, was a carpenter, began his ministry calling the disciples and performing all of these miracles that Peter in that moment says, you are the Messiah. And then only in the Gospel of Matthew, if you check this in Mark and Luke, you find a parallel story. But in the Gospel of Matthew, then Jesus has an extensive sort of response to, to Peter's proclamation of faith. And the others, he just quickly says, don't tell anybody. Like, this is a secret that's not quite ready to be revealed. But here, 
Jesus responds and says, Simon, son of Jonah, flesh did not reveal this answer to you. So you are now to be called Peter, the rock upon which the church will be built. And then he gives him the power of the keys, the power to forgive or not, the power that will rest in the church after Jesus' death and resurrection. So Peter gets it right. He nails it. A plus. Exactly. (laughs) He gets an A plus. He gets the answer right. And like many other parallels in Scripture, he gets a new name. Because even though as we look at the Scriptures, we might think that Peter's name is Simon Peter, his name is Simon. Jesus nicknames him Peter. And then he gets called Simon Peter from there on, or just Peter. Peter, in the word Peter in Greek means rock. And says, upon this rock, upon Peter, I will build my church. A symbolic way of saying it is going to be the faith of the disciples the face of the apostles upon which the foundation of the future of the church will rest. You are the rock, and to you I give the power to forgive, to tell of God's amazing love and grace, to share that message and change the world upon this rock. It's an amazing moment. Now, we'll get part two of the story of Peter next week. I don't want to do any spoilers for you. But I was thinking about this word rock. And when you think about a rock, being built on a rock, that's solid, right? It's a great foundation. There's another scripture where Jesus talks about building a house on rock versus building a house on sand. And when the storm comes, which of which is really important, it says not if the storm comes, but when the people who build their house on sand will crumble and fall, and those who build it on rock will withstand the storm. So we think of rock, that's solid, it's sturdy, and that's powerful for us to think about, building our life of faith on a strong, rock-like foundation. But I was reflecting upon rocks, and I was thinking about my childhood with my parents and my brother, and how we like to go on family hikes, and just the impact and the imprint that uh, still lives with me in many different ways. But we go on these hikes, and there was a few places that we liked as a family. These are on the shores of Lake Superior. And one particular place uh, we went uh, was a county park, and my dad loves geology. That's, he, he was a science major, loves geology, and he also is a natural teacher. So as we go on these hikes, and you know, I was probably four or five when we started, my brother and I uh, got to hear my dad's geology lecture because he couldn't help but tell us how each rock formations were formed. And so, Every time, it was almost verbatim the exact same uh, lecture from my dad. Now, my mom's an artist, 
So I think she got bored after a while and decided she'd go paint rocks. My brother became a geologist, so he really must have soaked up those, uh, those talks and discussions and got into the history of how, ge you know, the geologic history of where we were. And I decided I would skip rocks in the lake. That was my response. But I was thinking about rocks and how they're formed, and I'm, I'm also, you know, having just done my Western uh, National Park tour this summer for my sabbatical, and as I saw the Grand Canyon and arches and so many other places, I, I, after a while I kept sending Kelly these pictures of where I was, and she goes, it just looks like a lot of rocks. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's true. And the phone pictures don't quite capture the beauty of what I was seeing every single day. But unlike the idea like a rock is a firm foundation, how are rocks formed? It's pressure and power and all kinds of force that come together to form whatever distinct rock formation it is. And while rocks, as we look at them, you know, they're millions and millions of years old, they may seem like they never change, but of course they do. They are shaped by the environment and the elements they're subjected to. They're not simply a rock that never moves or is changed. And if you think about the Grand Canyon and the Colorado River that went through that, that formed that amazing canyon that seems to never end, that is a lot of power and force, a lot of environmental elements that have contributed to the ongoing development of that rock formation. And so I was thinking of, about how Peter is the rock. And instead of just simply thinking of Peter as a rock that never moves, that is just inert, solid, yes, what if we started to think about the rock, the rock of our faith, as being something that can change, and maybe change in a good way or not? And I think that's what Paul was talking about in Romans. If you go back to Romans 12, 2, Paul says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Think about that. The rock of faith. We will be shaped by our elements. We will be shaped by our environments. But how will we live into that? Will we be conformed? Will we just allow our environment, our world, to just do what it will with us? Or will we think differently about how we engage our faith in the world? Will we be conformed, passively taking what the world gives us, being told how to think, how to feel, or just blindly following others? Or will we be transformed? Transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we might discern the will of God, what is perfect and acceptable, what that will is for us in the moment that we face. In Peter's moment where he's asked, who do you say that I am? He gets it right. You are the Messiah. But the truth is, if you had asked Peter a week before, he might have not got that answer. And if you ask Peter 
A week after, he might not say the same thing. But in the moment that he's in, his mind is being renewed and he sees clearly the will of God for himself and the implications it has for the world. That same question, who do you say that I am, is one that I think Jesus asks of us as well. And I think it's being asked of us each day. And each day we have to decide, are we going to follow our worldly way of living or are we going to allow ourselves to be transformed and have our minds renewed? And it's all about those elements that we find ourselves in. So how do we think about the challenges we face? About sickness? about relationships, about hardship and struggle and stress and strain. Sometimes it can feel like the world is just piling on us and the weight of it is overwhelming and we just want to go, forgive the metaphor, under a rock and hide. Or we can claim boldly and, re, and have our minds renewed and say, I am a child of God. I am dearly beloved. I am beautifully and wonderfully made by God. And yes, I might be struggling, but God is never far from me. And I am blessed and there is a blessing that can and will come from this situation. Because when God sees death, God brings resurrection. Where the world only sees despair, God brings hope. Where there's hatred and division, a renewed mind sees love and becomes a person of healing. Who do you say that I am? That's a question that Jesus asks the disciples, and Peter gets it right. He becomes the rock. A rock that's still going to be subject to the elements of this world to wind and rain, heat, and so many other elements. And such it is in our life as well. But if we can have our minds focused on God's will and we can walk in faith, then we too can be part of the rock of the church, a light in the world, a vision of God's hope, and grace. May it be so. Amen.